Listener Production. I kind of like myself, you know. It's taken a long, long time. But that kid to become this woman, she's, she's had a go and she's doing all right. And she's, she's a good person, you know, and that's what's important. I like her. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Leah Purcell is a creative force. She is one of Australia's leading actors, writers and directors with award-winning roles in theatre, film and television. She's a proud Koa Gungari Waka Waka Murray woman from Queensland. Leah describes herself as a truth-teller and she's fearless when it comes to sharing her story and giving voice to women who didn't have one. You must see her film, The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson. She's reshaped Henry Lawson's iconic short story to be told from the perspective of an Indigenous woman. It made me think, weep and want to do more. Leah Purcell, I am just such a massive fan of yours. You are fierce (laughs) and you're unapologetic. And that just comes through everything you do. Yeah. And I've been busting to get you into the <laughs> studio to talk with you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been on the list to do for a while now, hasn't it? So we finally made it happen, 2023. What I think is extraordinary about you is that you're an exceptional storyteller mm. and you've been telling stories ever since you've been in the spotlight But what I found compelling is that you describe yourself, though, as a truth teller. Yeah, look, I've been telling stories since I was a kid, really. That was one way I could get through school was if I took control of the narrative, you know, and told my stories, although some of the times the teacher said my imagination was far too wild and to go sit down. Um, I come from a long line of storytellers. My mother was a storyteller. I've got aunties that are amazing storytellers. It's part of my culture to listen, to receive, to earn um, your storytelling talents. You know, when I go home, and that's home to Mergen, that's the Bush, Sherberg Aboriginal community, I sit very quiet because that's where all the storytellers are. And they all say, watch her, she's sitting quiet, she'll turn it into a movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I go, no, I'm learning, I'm learning. So it's part of who I am. But I guess the truth-telling came with the stories that I was receiving at those times. I was a young girl growing up in the bush, and that was part of our cultural practice. A lot of our cultural practice was gone, you know, taken away from us. My mother wasn't allowed to speak language or practice culture. My grandmother was considered subhuman on her papers from the government. She was part of the stolen generations. So we didn't have that opportunity to be wrapped in culture and give us that foundation. So stories, what we do have is our stories. No one can take that away from us. So those stories were passed down and they were just part of a cultural lesson. They were part of family history. They were for fun. They were times that were very sad that would make you listen and contemplate and think. And then, of course, in this day and age, 
it is about our Australian history that hasn't been told. And as part of that understanding that I want to bring through my artwork, I want to be that truth teller. So when I tell the truth in my stories, that's my mother's stories, that's my grandmother's stories, that's all the mothers before them. And I guess I sort of say to deny me those stories tells me I don't exist, but I do. And my grandmother exists for the pain that she went through as being part of the stolen generations. My mother was the lost generation where they were forbidden, forbidden. They would be punished to practice culture, to be Aboriginal and to be proud of that. But yet they were demanded to assimilate and cross into white society, but they weren't invited. They weren't still allowed to be who they were. So I think through my art and my opportunity where I do have a voice, my mother never had a voice, my grandmother never had a voice, and the mothers before them. And so it would be a crime if I didn't have and use this opportunity to use my voice and to be that truth teller because their truths happened, they existed, those things happened, and now it's about understanding that and then moving forward so we don't repeat those actions. And that's why I proudly wear the title of truth teller. And as you said before, I'm a fierce bitch and I'll walk forward and I'll roll over anybody. (laughs) (laughs) And that is you, though. You are a force of nature because you've said you basically just knock doors off hinges to make things happen. You just walk through. And I think that was because I saw the restraint in my mother. I saw the restraint in my grandmother, not only because she had no voice and was seriously in the times when she moved to the Aboriginal settlement of Sherberg, people said those blacks were subhuman. And then my mother, who was a pride for woman, she was a great singer. She could dance. She could tell a joke. So the fierceness that I have is what they couldn't portray. But at home, they would instill that you you are somebody, you know, you hold your head up high. Yet I would see my mother when she'd approach certain people and she would drop this demeanour, her head would drop and she wouldn't look at people. And I'd always wonder, why do you do that with that certain person? Yet you're this other blossoming, flowering, crazy lady, you know, that knew how to have a good time. But I didn't know what world that she was battling two worlds. So I saw the fierceness in her privately and the determination in her. She raised seven children. My white dad was married to another woman and they had a family. So my mother was, I don't know, the sidekick. He had six children to her. I was the youngest. She raised two nephews. There was two white boys in the town that would never go home. She raised them. She looked after her crippled mother for 27 years, then her father, and then she died from bowel cancer. You know, when her life was just kicking in at 60, far too young. So I I use that fierceness and that determination that I know that little woman, she was four foot nothing. I saw her take on men and calmed wild beasts, you know. And she always told me life's not going to be easy. So the choices you make, you can either make it harder for yourself or you can make it a little bit easier. But don't expect that you're going to get anything. Always work on the theory, you come from nothing, you got nothing. It's easier to go back to that. I've no fear of failure because when you come from nothing, it's all right, I can go back and live on $2 and, you know, share in a bed or whatever. So it's about that determination to succeed. And whatever that is, whether I make a million dollars, 10 million, or whether I never get there, but it's about doing and being happy in the life that I've chosen to live and following a dream. Very fortunate to be able to do that and be passionate about that. 
and just working your butt off to get it just on a roll. <laughs> I've been doing it for 31 years now and I'm just on a roll. You and know, you, it's crazy. And what a roll it is and has been. So you listened to your mum, but there were some things that you didn't listen to your mum about. What makes me laugh is that what, as a four-year-old, were you telling your mum you wanted to be Doris Day? Yes, yes. In Mergen, we only had two channels. So it was the ABC and something else. Of course, there'd be the Sunday matinees at 2pm. And we sit down and I love my Doris Day, Liza Minnelli, Barbara Streisand and watching the Cowboy and Indians movies, the Westerns. And I just fell in love with Doris Day. She was a strong woman. She could sing. She could dance. She could act. And, you know, she was tough, yet she was feminine. And I just said I wanted to be like her. And my mum said, look, you're black. You're from the bush. You're a woman. I don't think that's going to happen. Think about being a nurse or working at the meatworks. And I went, oh, okay. But I just, you know, I packed that little dream away and I and I kept it, you know, at the back of my mind. But I saw my family performing. So, you know, we, when we'd have a barbecue, there'd be just so many people and lots of kids and I'd put on productions. So I sort of was living my dream through them. It, yeah, I just kept that little dream alive in my back pocket, you know. When the time came when I had to get out of Mergen, I wasn't in a very good way and I just had my daughter. So I was pregnant at 17. I turned 18 in August. My daughter was born in September. My mother died in October and I was in an abusive relationship. And I was nudging alcohol at the time because I saw my mum sort of dull and her pain through that. And I just sort of said, uh, this isn't me. I don't like where it was taking me. There was suicidal thoughts. And I saw myself reflection in a mirror, a mirror that I used to play in as a kid. I'd sing, I'd dance, I'd dance with Doris Day and Whitney Houston and Janet Jackson as we got a little bit older. But I saw myself in that and this little voice came from that back pocket and said, didn't you want to act? And I said, yeah, I did. But I live in Mergen and I have a kid. How the hell do I do that? So how in the hell did you do that? As a Mm. 19-year-old, escaping, as you say, an abusive relationship, I mean, you literally climbed out the window Mm. of your house, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I was too frightened to walk past the room, so I threw a lot of the bags out and uh, got my daughter out. Uh, There was one more bag that I left and uh, there was someone sleeping in another room and I tapped on the window and I said, I need the bag in the hallway. And I did, you know, through the window and I left I had to do it. You know, my mother wasn't there anymore. I didn't want this lifestyle because I grew up in pubs. I grew up around, there was pub violence. You know, I probably spent more times in pubs when I was underage than what I don't, I don't even have a local now, you know, like I just, I just don't go there. I just spent too much time there and I didn't want that for my daughter. So I literally jumped in my car and then I went to stay with my sister for a minute then I went down to an auntie in Marimbula for about three months to get myself together, Auntie Faye. And she was great because she was like a surrogate mum, a grandmother for my little girl because that's my mum's younger sister. And it was nice to have someone to just lighten that load because no matter what age you are, parenting, mothering is full on. And it was nice to have that and it gave me an opportunity to find myself. And then I went back to Brisbane and I ran into a... Um, an old preschool mate who rung me out of the blue. I said, how did you know I was here? She said, my mum saw your sister up the street in Mergen. She said you were in Brisbane. You were looking for somewhere to stay. She said, I'm about to find an apartment. If I find one, will you come and stay? And I went, yeah, sure. I think in two weeks. She rung me the next day and said, got it. 
And I said, I guess fate stepped in and I'm not going home. And she was doing an acting course. And I went, oh, can I do your course when you finish? And she said, well, I don't own it. Of course you can do it. And I sort of, that was the only sort of training I sort of did. I was the first ever to get an excellent at the school. I don't know how excellent that was to have that excellent, but anyway, it made me feel good. Of course. Yeah, but it made me feel good and I went, I can do this. This is how I can become an actor. Once again, I think fate stepped in and I met my partner, Bain Stewart. We've been together now 31 years and he was the first person outside the family and as well as that little course that went, you're actually really good. Haven't you described Bain as a gift from your ancestors? Yeah, I actually dreamt him. I dreamt of him for about six months before, or a year nearly, before I met him. And it was his hair and yeah, and there was these five children with us, but they're all different shades of colour. And because he helped raise his sister, his sister's two sons, um, his daughter and my daughter. So there was the five kids. And then one day when we were started to go out, it was a blind date. My cousin worked for his cousin and long story, blackfella grapevine going around. <laughs> but I looked at him side on one day and I went, oh, it's you. And he went, well, what do you mean? I said, I actually dreamt you a year out. But it was beautiful because, as I said, he was that outside person that said, you're actually talented, Leah. You know, he went for a jog. We were so into our our fitness in those days. He ran a martial arts gym, the first Indigenous-owned martial arts He went for a jog, saw a yellow piece of paper in the gutter, flipped it over, and it was for a Murray Music Workshop. And I said, look, I know half of those mob. They'll probably be my uncles, and I know how they carry on. He said, but you should go, because I was singing in his shower, and I said, look, you don't have to kid me up. I'm sleeping with you already. (laughs) I know I got it. You know, thanks for the compliment. But he said, no, I'm actually serious. So I went along, and it was the best thing I could do, because, yeah, they were all my uncles, all my cousins, but it was ran professionally, and I didn't feel that I was stupid when I made mistakes. So or it was I could, a safe space. Yes. So it wasn't as if, say, you were walking into a room or an institution with people judging you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying you're not enough. Yeah, or a school. I would never, if someone said go study, I said not in your life. They had to, you know, chain me to a chair when I was at school in Mergen. I said, no, I don't, I couldn't sit in an institution. But because they were blackfellas, because they were my mob, I felt really empowered. What I'd really like to do is to go back to Mergen, mm. go back to that little girl. You were talking about the time that you spent in pubs mm. with your mum. Mm. And was it right that you had your first drink when you were nine? Yeah, probably even younger, just to get home. I'd knock them back, say, so you finished. <laughs> She'd go, how did that happen? I said, yeah, I don't know, you drunk it. Lighter cigarettes, five of them back. And it was just, it's just so I could get her home because being the youngest of seven, and there's a fair age between me and the youngest of the first six. So I sort of grew up like an only child because they were all, you know, teenagers and adults and doing their own families and their own things and some living away. So my responsibility to her was to look after her. You know, and I saw her pain. I understood from a very young age what she was doing and why she drank and why she would lose herself in that. Because of her pain, of her relationship, she had a man she couldn't love, although she had six kids to him. You know, he had a family and moved away. So I understood why she drowned in the brown bottle. So I did not judge her. I was just there for her. That's a big responsibility, though. How can you, as a little girl not be angry or resentful then as you become a teenager? Oh, that, no, absolutely. When I was 14, I was very resentful, but I didn't, I couldn't articulate it, but I was angry. I was angry at 14. Oh, yeah. I could have been a bad girl or a good girl. 
a little bit crazy there for a little while, (laughs) but it was a teacher that sort of pulled me back in line. But no, absolutely. And it's stuff that you carry later because then you learn through the habits to abuse alcohol, you know, and then, and you come back and you go, that doesn't feel right, you know, and you've got to learn if you're going to participate in that, how to drink for the pleasure, not to drown, you know, and to dullen as a lot of people do. But, oh, yeah, there was resentment there. There was time I was so tired. I'd go to school and tell the teacher, I've got to go to the sick room. I'm, I just went to bed four hours ago. Because and you'd put your Because I put bed. my mum to bed. And because she had me at 42, and in those days, you know, that was old. Of course it's not now when you're, you know, living in this time. And I was worried about if she died, then who would understand me? People could look after me, but who would understand me? We had a little understanding. And I would sit up and watch her until about four o'clock and then her breathing would be normal because she'd, of course, have the drunk snore and her breathing would be normal and then I could go to sleep. But then, of course, you have gone up at eight o'clock trying to get to school, you know. And there was times where I was making adult decisions as a 10-year-old because my grandmother was there. She was crippled with arthritis and Parkinson's disease and it was my job to go home at five o'clock, cook her fried eggs. I'd jump up on the table to flip and then I'd have to get back to the pub before the lights turned on. But it was almost like everyone was waiting for me and I'd get dressed up, I'd go home and put my little shoes on and, and then I'd come back to the pub and everyone would cheer. Leah's back! And then the party would begin. It was like they were just waiting, you know, and so you felt that that was a community but then when you've got to be the child in school and I go, don't tell me what to do, lady, because I've just put my mother to bed, I had to put my grandmother on the commode and cook her a meal, if I'm telling you I'm tired, I'll be back after recess and that homework, you might get it at the end of the week. If you don't, don't sweat on it <laughs> because I just I had to be forward because that was my life, you know of coming forward and and possibly because I had a mouth on me, I may have saved myself, you know, if there was vulnerable times with people because I could tell you to get effed pretty good actually. (laughs) And where did that come from? From your mum, from your grandmother? Yeah, absolutely. My mother and grandmother, they were still strong women in their own right. But life just beat my mum a little bit, you know, beat her. Uh, She fought it and she tried to make the best of the situation that she could. You know, she's my mother, she's my father, she's my hero. You know, she gave everything, you know, and got very little back. Where a time when she was 60 where she should have got her life because I had just turned, I must have been about, um, yeah, I was 18, so I was sort of doing my own thing. Yes, a young mum in not a very good relationship, but, you know, that was her time to live and she was taken by bowel cancer. So I feel... Um, you know, she was cheated in a little bit, but hey, the good die young. So maybe she's out there in the dream and, you know, doing what she loves best and, you know, being with family. And But she was always a good laugh and she was also, people trusted her. My mother was doing reconciliation before the word became fashionable. There was always be blackfellas and whitefellas at our home if there was a party and she was allowed to go into the bar, into the whites only area because she worked for the publican. But then she'd bring mob in and they'd go, we're with Aunty Flo. And Aunty Flo just ruled the roost. Mrs P or Aunty Flo was what they'd call her. Everyone had a lot of respect for my mum. You know, when she drunk, she was a binge drinker. But, you know, as they say, anyone's an alcoholic that relies on alcohol to stimulate emotion of some form. But I understood why and I was there to protect her. I was a terrier when it came to my mother. You know, walk her home, put her to bed 
make sure she was right. You know, Jim Reeves at four in the morning, I'd go, Mum, I've got to get up soon. One more on the record player around it would go. But I wouldn't change any of that because it's made me the woman I am today. It's made me very appreciative of what I didn't have and now what I have. Gives you an opportunity to be passionate, to be determined. Life, you know, that's what I say to people, life's not meant to be easy. If you think, I don't know what movie you watched or what planet you think you are, if you look at life being hard and then all the hardships doesn't seem too hard and when you get rewarded with goodness, it's amazing. So... You know, that's my motto anyway. And your mum also gave you a story, The Drover's Wife, that has been instrumental to you and to your career. And that was a book she read when when you were five Yeah, 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 when I was five. And she read it to me and would recite it to me. And I think the reason I connected to it it was the first time I used my imagination and I put myself in that story so that maybe the actor was coming out in me because I'd stop her and, and say the last line and the last line is, Ma, I won't never go a-droving. So I'd jump up in bed, it'd be midnight. She'd go, kid, go to sleep. I said, oh, you want to sleep early, are you? Because <laughs> you were my sleeper, yeah, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, it's my night to party now. <laughs> uh, and I said, tell me the story. And I'd stop her and I'd get up and I'd go, Ma, Never go a droving. And, you know, I probably wouldn't have went a droving if she didn't die because I think if she had lived, I'd still be there. I would not be here because it was my duty to look after her. That's how I felt. So her, her death to me was a gift to set me free and otherwise I would still be in Mergen looking after her today if she was still alive. So that's how I look at that. I look at that as my gift that set me free because when she died, I said I don't have to be here, you know, Her house is just a place. She lives in my mind. She lives in my heart. She lives in my spirit because of the stories that she told me. And Drover's wife was one of them. And when I left, that jumped out the window, got me bags, I pushed the car down the drive because I didn't want to start it up, kick-started it and off I went. But I nearly forgot that book and I had to go back in for that as well. And that was the one thing, that book, I don't know why I took it because at that time I was just running for my life and I was wondering where a full tank of petrol and whatever money I had in my back pocket was going to get me. Uh, I wasn't going, one day I'm going to make a movie out of this. And it was just something that I had. I knew I was five because in on the spare pages I wrote Dick, Dora, Nip and Fluff and that was from your grade one readers so I knew that I was five years old and just kept it with me. So I, it was with me for about... Uh, well, when I started putting pen to paper, it was over 42 years of having that idea because then, of course, when I got into the industry and you go, you know, going through things, I'd, oh, there's that book. So I put it on the shelf to do something with. 2006, I was shooting Jindabyne with Ray Lawrence up in the Snowy Mountains and me and Bain would go for a drive and have a look around and I fell in love with the landscape and I said, we don't utilise this enough in, in our films or on TV and... It was beautiful and we went up to Mount Kosciuszko, walked right up to the top and I literally just started yelling out, oh, I'm coming back. Uh, I think I'm going to do something. I think it's going to be the drover's wife and I'm going to be in it, in it, in it, in it. Echoed around the mountain ranges. So that was 2006, cut to 2019 and literally on the opposite range I'm singing out action and, and cut, you know. So, I, But I did. I put it out there to the universe and, and you know, slowly but surely... You know, opportunities came because I, I was a director in a writer's workshop and I got frustrated with the writers because they kept 
regurgitating the same stuff. And I go, Leah, don't get frustrated. Maybe it's time for you to sit down and write your next project. And that's when I went home. It was a Friday night and I looked at my shelf and that book was just sticking out a little bit further. That red cover was that the front had fallen off at this stage. And I went, it's time. And I plucked it off the shelf, put it beside me. And I said to Bain, I'm going to start writing something. Leave me alone. And I said, I'm not going to reread it. I just held it up and I'm just going to see, remember what my mother told me. And away I went, seven days. <laughs> and it is the most beautiful film. The landscape, as you say, when you mm. film Jin Divine, I mean, it's extraordinary the way you've brought that landscape mm. to life. I wept watching it. Mm. There's so much that is in there. And for you to bring it to life in that way, mm. I just think is phenomenal. I love watching my Joe cantering across the flats, coming home, sun setting behind him, children running to greet him, waving his hat with joy on seeing him. Oh, thank you. I, I worked so hard. I had, you know, four or five hats on. Other people had sent me scripts, like I've had a lot of scripts. Can you direct this? This can be your first film, you know. They're giving you the cell and I went, no, it's got to be something that I, I know. It's got to be something that I'm passionate about. And Drover's Wife was it. I believe my mother gifted me that all those years ago and because I just so knew it. And then when I sat down to write from my mother's perspective and brought the stories forward, then and then I went back and reread it and put the Henry and then I went, oh, okay, I can add that and took a bit more from Henry. But then I went, ah, oh, it's not satisfying me. It's, where's the mongrel in it? <laughs> where's the Leah Purcell? And Bain said, well, then why don't you look at us as blackfellas? Where's our story through that? Because Henry only touched it and they were bad blacks and all of that. And I went, oh, yeah. And that's when the truth-telling, because he said as blackfellas, if we can't tell our truths, then who can? And if we've got an opportunity to put this on the main stage or on a commercial screen, then that's where we're going to make a difference. And then I went and wrote for another three days without coming up for air, just a bit of water, and put my great-grandfather's story through it. Thought about my grandmother, like the piece of paper, for those who have seen it, the piece of paper that goes into the fire. That's my grandmother's story. Octoroons is what I would call Molly Johnson's children. Just a touch of the tar brush, but enough. For their protection, the children's removal is authorised. You have been very good to me and my children over the years, and for that I am very grateful. But damn you to hell for thinking you know what's best for my children. I could take frames and write you a whole nother film from out of it. It's so layered. I know every word behind everything that's said, where I got the inspiration for stuff. And that's what I try to tell the young people that I'm mentoring. If you're going to do something, I said, and you might only get one chance at doing it. I may never make another film. I may never because that's the nature of this industry. I said, so you go hard, you go passionate and you go with something that's going to make a difference, you know. And I did, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I loved every stressful moment. I loved every beautiful moment. I loved every creative moment that we found something that we didn't realise was there or the potential of it growing, um, giving the other actors an opportunity to voice their interests or their passion about the character and taking it to another, another level. 
And then to hear other actors say your words, you know, like when Jessica DeGau um, spoke Louisa's words, I said, shit, she just made me sound so smart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of those words, though, there was a part that really, really made me weep towards the end where that character says, can I hear you? I was was trying to give a voice to an issue that's been kept silent for far too long. Giving women the voice. I could only hear you. Point made. Can I hear you, Molly? Please. Yes. And that, to me, summed up so much of it that we needed to hear your voice and your story, Yeah. your character's story. That meant so much to me. And why I wept was that I thought... I wish there was more, I suppose, as a white woman that I could do yeah. to make a difference and because yeah. there's so much pain in that and I'm just watching it. Yeah. I haven't lived it. It's not my family yeah. but I see that and I feel the injustice. Yeah. Well, there was two things with that character of Louisa. I wanted her to represent the, the white women that have helped me on my journey to give that respect back. I wanted to showcase that there are women out there, non-Indigenous, that have got the right heart and they're trying. And I think it's about having a go and might be fumbling and might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, but at least there's an attempt. And I think that's what we have to try for. And then we'll try for perfection as we all work together and work through it. And I wanted to showcase that with her. And yes, it's about non-Indigenous women listening to Indigenous women. It's also just about women listening to women, and it's also about the issue of domestic violence. You've got to listen to the women or the women, you know, that are on that at the end of the abuse, you know, to listen, to give them the space to feel safe to say they need help, they need something. And that's what that that role was for, you know, the three or four different variations, but it's about listening and, and letting those people have the voice, not coming in and think you're going to correct it. I think the first thing anyone can do with Indigenous issues, and we still haven't done it in this country, is to listen. Just listen. There's people out there that know how we can turn corners and it's got to start at the top. There's a grassroots level of people in this country that do want to listen. It's got to start at the top with the government listening and that's where I think we need the voice. The voice in Parliament is a start. Then we can look at sovereignties and treaties and that, but you've got to trust. We've got phenomenal people in there now. We've got phenomenal young people coming up that are so smart, that are working on legislations and, you know, looking at the Constitution and let them, let them lead and let there be a voice because for the past 200-plus years it's not working. And that's it. I'm even saying that to my own mob because there's people that don't think that it's going to work. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to try something because the past history has shown it hasn't worked. And I think you've got to start at the top. Because I'm so sorry about the past. <laughs> I am. Thank it's, you. It's something that, you know, when I see your extraordinary mm. film, it reminds me again of mm. how terrible what we have done oh. to your people is, but also 
what we need to do to make amends. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a shocking, a shocking history that we have. But I think that we need to hear it. We need to listen to it. And as I said before, so we don't make the same mistakes. And Australia can be leading the way in how we deal with Indigenous peoples from around the world. We can make those changes and we can empower and make a difference because there's still a lot of pain out there, you know, but I think the self-governing of our own mob with us in power can make a change and we can help that. I think what it's got to be, it's non-Indigenous people have to talk to your people in power and make them because they're not listening to a black voice, but as anything, you know, white on white should talk about it, black on black needs to talk about it, the ones that can come together and bridge both worlds to share in what knowledge we receive are the ones that are going to make the change, you know. They call them the white wolf in a Native American mob where they walk in two worlds. They can speak the language of both. They walk in two worlds and they're the front runners. And I think, you know, we need high people in high positions of white fellas talking to the white fellas. And that's when change is going to come and our mob to look after our mob. And then we come together. You're an activist. You're a truth teller. Do you ever get weary of that? Do you ever think, I don't want to do this anymore? No. No, because that's what I'm here to do. You know, life's short and you've got to do all you can. So, no, I'm not actually. I get energised by it. Just sitting here now, you know, I was tired when I walked in. I'm pumped, ready to go and do some weights. <laughs> but, you know, no, no, it's empowering. You know, I live with hope for change. It's empowering and I try to do little obscure things um, next month I go up and I'm talking at a prison with some young women. You know, I, I want to empower them. I want to give back. Um, it makes me feel good about where I am in my life and if I can shine a little bit of light on someone to, to give them faith and hope and, and that they can do it, I think it's important to do. I believe I'm here to walk in the two worlds. I'm here to share with my art I mean, it's bigger than me. I don't do this for me. The day I do, I don't know what it'll be like. What what that feels like? But it's for a purpose and it's bigger than me. And I'm here, I'm the conduit, I'm the vessel, and I'm just, yeah, I'm here to give. And you're brave because for you, you don't fear fear, do you? I don't fear it, but in saying that, yes, I'm brave, but yet I can be terribly scared. I don't let it defeat me. I think you've got you to have fear, but it's how you let fear rule you, R-U-L-E, rule, and I don't let it. I think you have to feel it because you've got to know you're alive. You've got to go, shit, this is scary. It also tells you to get away. It helps you, you know, flight or fight. But I do like a good... No, no, no. <laughs> well, I but tell it, you... <laughs> Some of those scenes in The Drover's Wife, you did those stunts. Yeah. And you've done stunts in Wentworth as well. Yeah, yeah. You are fearsome. (laughs) That's from the boxing, I guess. We come from a boxing family. My father was a boxing trainer. So I jumped in the ring when I was about five. My dad said to me, you got the best technique out of all the boys. If only you were a boy, you'd be an Australian champ. And then when I was about maybe seven, could be nine, the nephew that went on to almost, he made it to the Barcelona Games but pulled out. I got in the ring with him and I, we were sparring and then I seen my father because I was watching him watching 
watching my nephew, and I'm going, what's going on here? And I seen the old man just give him a nod and bang, he planted me fair on the hose. I hit the canvas and the old man said, you want to box anymore? And I went, no. And in those days they didn't have girls doing that. But I became the best spit bucket girl. So I'd follow them around when they do all the tournaments and I would hold the buckets. My reflexes, I catch things falling off shelves. I just go like that because I had to be quick because the boys didn't aim. They just spat so you had to catch it. But I was part of that world. And then um, because of the training and then I picked up with Bain being a martial artist so we had that in common. It's a great sport to get fit. It's a great way to get rid of, you know, hatred, anger, frustration. Because he used to represent boxers and yeah. kickboxers but you were the toughest one of them all. Didn't yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I'd get in there, mate. He had Australian champs and like they were big boys and they would just give it to me. <laughs> I was all padded up because I'd hold the warrior pads, but mate, they didn't pull anything back. And I gave it back to them just as good as I got. But it was just, I like sport. I'm sport mad. I like to feel the pain in your body. I don't know, it's satisfying. After it, I don't know, maybe I'm weird. Um, It's empowering too, you know, when you're a woman. Like at the gym, I also held self-defence classes for the ladies that came in. And, man, you know, that was quiet and timid. By the end of their six-weeks program, they were getting in with knees and elbows and feeling confident and even looking the part of strength deters people from coming at you, you know. I said, it's a bluff, really. (laughs) But I I don't know, I I just got enjoyment out of seeing how that empowers people and how good you feel and feeling strong. And and my mother said, rely on no one. So, you know, if you can do it, do it all. But I love doing the stunts. I'm 52 now. I've got to stop. I've got to stop it. It's too hard. (laughs) No, don't stop it. You keep being you. What I want to ask you finally is... When you look in the mirror now, Mm. what do you see? Someone who believes in herself finally, believe in in my grey hair, that there's wisdom there, there's experience there. I kind of like myself, you know. It's taken a long, long time. But that kid, to become this woman, she's, she's had a go. And she's doing all right. And she's she's a good person, you know. And that's what's important. I like her now. Well, I love you. <laughs> You're extraordinary, Leah. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing some of your story with us. Thank you, Jessica. The warmth that just radiated from her when we sat here together in the studio. She invigorated me She makes me think, and I am going to do more. As she said, we all have a role to play. We can't just put our hands up and say, it's all too hard. There is something that we can do. And I thank you, Leah, for making me think. And if you're listening to this from Queensland, Leah is going to be directing Breaking the Castle this year at QPAC. Now, that is Queensland's Performing Arts Centre, and we've put a link in the show notes for tickets and info. And for more big conversations like this, follow the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you will never miss an episode. And I reckon there's somebody in your life that you would like to share this conversation with. So go on, nothing's stopping you, share it with them. And if you enjoyed this episode with Leah, I reckon you'll enjoy my chat 
with Mitch Tambo. When you step out and you embrace all of who you are, it's not all going to be roses. There's going to be haters. That's just the walk of life. But no one can prepare you for that. And when you hit that, it's just you've got to have you know a great support network. It doesn't have to be massive, but just a support network of people that you can draw on and feel okay. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.